Imagine someone from the wilds of Tibet or the Amazon jungle someplace where there's been no technology at all. Coming into a situation where they're in a movie theater and there's a movie of some world war going on. Imagine how that person would feel in the level of involvement, you know, and identification and thinking that, oh my God, something awful is really happening here. Because there'd be no frame of reference for understanding that it was only a movie. That really nothing was happening at all. In our own experience, Everything is arising actually in just the same way. Everything arises as an appearance due to different conditions. And each of these arising appearances, no matter how real they may seem to us, are in essence empty and insubstantial, not having any self-existing nature at all. But it's through different tendencies in our minds, different habits that have been long established, perhaps over lifetimes. Through these tendencies or habits, we solidify a sense of ourselves, a sense of the world, taking experience to be real, to be solid, to be self-existing. We talked of this a couple of weeks ago with reference to the functioning of perception and how perception recognizes the superficial aspects of an experience creates a concept about it, and then how we get imprisoned in the attachment to that concept of man, of woman, of person, of building, of car, of world, in so many endless ways. There's another very strong tendency of mind, in addition to perception, that when we identify with very much creates this hallucination both of self and of solidity to the world that we live in. When this tendency of mind is identified with, we lose sight of the transparency, of the insubstantiality of all phenomena. We lose sight of the fact that it's all a movie. And this particular tendency or habit of mind is the very strong conditioning of fear. Fear is one aspect of aversion. Now when we don't like something And the something could be a person, it could be a thing, 
It could be an object. When we don't like something, when we have aversion to it, that aversion can take several different forms. It can take the form of anger. We don't like, so we strike out at something. A couple of years ago, I saw this little feature on TV. It was on the news, and it was talking about this place. I think it was in Atlanta. It was kind of like a shop where people could come and bring all of the things in their lives, objects in their lives, that caused them frustration. And have a, there was a whole arsenal of weapons which they could shoot. So people were bringing their computers and their VCRs that they couldn't program, you know, and their TVs that went on the blink, and just everything where they... And they slide them on the same page. <laughs> you know, shoot the machine gun at it. That's striking out at the object, <laughs> you know, where, where the, the anger is so strong. So that's one aspect of aversion. Another aspect of aversion, when we don't like something, is when we grieve or feel sorrow at whatever's present, whether it's a situation or a person or a loss. That's another aspect of not liking what is present, taking that form. The third aspect of aversion is when there's something we don't like and we contract into fear. So fear is this retreating aspect. We contract in tightness. Tonight I'd like to talk about fear how it's conditioned in our minds, and how it's possible to transform this conditioning into freedom. What are the things that we're afraid of, that we are commonly afraid of? Often this fear of pain, of physical pain, there can be fear of different mind states or images or emotions, really states that are so unpleasant to us that we're afraid to feel them. There's often fear of change because inherent in change is loss and so dependent on our relationship to that. We can be conditioned or habituated to fear Fear of the unknown, fear of death. The problem for us with all of these things is that they all actually are part of our life. There's no one who is completely free of pain in their lives or free of unwholesome or unpleasant, difficult mind states. There's no one who's free of the truth of change of loss, of death. So these are all part of ourselves, even though they're often not rightly understood. 
What happens in this meditative path, really what it is, is a path of opening. And we're opening to more and more aspects of our experience. And as we make this journey, what happens is that we reach the boundaries of what is familiar, of what is comfortable. In our lives, we've each staked out a domain that we feel okay with, that we feel comfortable with. And we tend to live within those fences. But as we practice and we open to more and more in our bodies, in our minds, in our emotions, we reach the boundaries, we reach the edges of what's comfortable, of what's acceptable. And it's exactly at those boundaries, at those edges, that fears begin to manifest themselves. So working with and understanding fear really becomes the practice of freedom. Do we stay constricted? Do we stay contracted? Do we stay safe in our limitations? Or are we willing to play at the edge, to go beyond those limits, and to confront the fears that arise? So first we begin to look at what we're afraid of, what limits us, and to see if we can actually go beyond those limits. And second, we look at the nature of fear itself. So what is it that limits us? The most obvious one and the aspect of our experience that presents itself from the first day of practice is physical pain as it arises in the body. Now you've been here more than a month and I'm sure you have some very direct experience of pain arising and what the mind does with it. It doesn't even have to be agonizing pain. We can also see fear arise even in terms of discomfort. There's a strong conditioning in our minds to avoid unpleasantness. Now we're often willing to, we're unwilling to be uncomfortable, as if that is the measure right, of whether we do something or not. Will it be comfortable or not? And this is a tremendous limitation in our lives. Did I mention my Burma anxiety dream in this course? This is years ago. You know, many of my friends had started going to Burma to practice. And we're coming back with these stories, both of how wonderful a place it was to practice, but how difficult. You know, conditions are really difficult, and the food is difficult, and health, and not a very comfortable place. So it took me a couple of years of kind of both being inspired and wanting to go, but also having a real fear of putting myself in that situation. 
especially being a Taurus. Taurus are notorious comfort wallers. <laughs> so finally, I, you know, I get up my courage after a few years, and I make all the preparations to go. And the night before I leave, I have this dream that I'm in Burma, I arrive there, I'm at the monastery, and that one of the rules for being there is that you can't sit on a zafu. <laughs> and it's like they were taking away the last piece of comfort. <laughs> it's helpful to look at you know, the degree to which that becomes how we decide things. Do we not do things out of an avoidance of feeling pain, of feeling discomfort. It's helpful to see it very clearly in the practice because it takes a lot of subtle forms. You know, and so when you're sitting with painful feelings, really pay attention to the subtleties in the way the mind relates. Have you noticed when you're sitting sometimes just the very small shifts of position. You know, you're sitting and there's nothing much. You're not changing posture. And just what is that about? Is it because of some agonizing pain? Or is it because there's some little discomfort in the body and often unconsciously, not with great intentionality or mindfulness? If there's a slight discomfort, we move. We want to see that, not with a sense of a judging mind, but just to really gain insight into this. Notice the relationship to discomfort or pain. Not only is there these slight shifts of position by way of avoidance, very often there'll be a painful feeling, and we can sense that contraction you know, in the face of it. It's like the body tenses in the face of pain. What is that? That's an aspect of fear. We don't want to feel it. We withdraw. We we pull back. Sometimes we get into mind tapes about the pain. Mind tapes of self-pity. I'm the only one suffering here. Everybody else is blissful. We can get into bargaining. It's what I call the in order to mind. You know, we're with it in order for something to happen, in order for it to to diminish, in order for it to disappear. That also is not actually being open to it. It's like we're coming with an agenda out of fear of feeling it. Perhaps the most striking manifestation of fear and one that plays itself out in so many other domains of our lives is our fear of anticipated pain. You know, we're sitting and we may feel discomfort or even quite painful sensations, but that's okay. We can handle that, but the mind starts anticipating what it's going to be like over the next half hour or hour. And then we react out of fear 
to the anticipated pain. Now, how often in our lives do we create scenarios in our minds of what might happen and then get worried, get fearful, get afraid? And it's all just an imagination. One of the stories that I like a lot and told many of you in interviews, the story of the, the monk in the cave who was an artist painting a tiger and painting it so realistically that when he finished, he looked at it and got frightened. This is what we're doing in our lives. We're painting these pictures of things. We're creating these stories in our mind of something that's not actually here in the moment. We paint this picture, we paint this tiger, look at it and get frightened. It's very helpful to see how we do this over and over and over again. And one of the great gifts of this retreat, of a long retreat like this, you have ample opportunity. <laughs> yeah, you can just sit and watch the mind in this painted tiger routine. And I would make that note when you see this happening, when you see the mind creating, whether it's about anticipated pain or discomfort or any other mental imagining. As you see that happening, you look at these things and get frightened or agitated or worried or fearful, whatever. Painted tiger. It's like that person coming into the movie theater who doesn't know about movies and getting all upset about the war on the screen. There's nothing really there. Working with physical pain in the practice really is a tremendous gift to us because it brings us right to the edge of what we're willing to be with. You know, a lot of us, in theory, have this idea, yeah, I really like to play the edge. Right, let, me, let me get to my limits, to my boundaries. Okay. <laughs> Physical pain can do that very quickly. I had that experience with Upandita, the, the first course I sat with him, where he got this crazy idea in his mind. He told me, and I, my practice was going fine. You know, I was feeling quite light and happy and full of nice feelings. He told me just to sit until the pain came and then to sit through it. So I'd sit for like an hour and a half or so and there was no pain and then slowly, you know, two hours and the pain started coming and three hours and it got more and more intense. It got really intense. <laughs> and I felt like I was being tortured. And it was, in a way, even worse because I knew that if I moved a quarter of an inch, that pain would go away. And it was just an interesting experiment just to watch what my mind did with this, you know, where it got to its limits, to see, okay, what makes something unbearable? What does unbearable mean? And I reached that point often. And I would reach the point where it was unbearable and I had to move. So it's not to do it with a kind of... Uh, <coughs> you know, macho thing. Okay, I'm going to just sit here. and It's just out of that place of interest. 
Okay, what is pain? How are we relating to it? Can we open? Do we contract? What's going on? Here, you know, we move our legs a quarter of an inch and the pain might go away. There are many situations in our lives when the pain's not going to go away. There are people who are sick in certain ways, who may be dying in a painful way. What is our relationship to that pain going to be? There's a tremendous value in learning about it, in seeing where the fear is, where the openness is, while we're still in a space of relative strength and health and where we can take that interest. There are many places in the suttas, in the discourses, where the Buddha would visit somebody who was sick and dying. And, and often the descriptions of the physical pain they're going through, the very graphic descriptions of the pain. And often the Buddhist comment to this person would be, even though your body is going through you know, this very difficult, painful thing, can you keep your mind peaceful? Can you keep your mind aware? Can you rest in mindfulness? So it's really training for us. We don't want to be so caught up or identified with the fear of pain that we don't allow ourselves in some way or another to begin to explore it, to begin to open to it. In this exploration of pain, it's helpful to recognize different kinds because some pain is a danger signal. You know, you put your hand in fire, burning, burning, (laughs) burning. No, you want to take it out of the fire. But there's a lot of kind of pain that comes up in the practice which could be called dharma pain. Either the pain of us feeling accumulated tensions. Now, we carry a lot of tension in our body mostly unknowingly until we sit down and stop distracting ourselves. And then it starts to really be revealed. The practice of awareness is allowing that to decondition. So we want to be with that kind of dharma pain. Sometimes it's old injuries, you know, which are re-manifesting. We're re-feeling them. And there's a, there's a great purification process that happens quite as a byproduct, but something that can happen and has been well documented in the East. Just through the practice of awareness, many organic diseases have been cured in practice simply through being aware and going through the pain of the healing crisis. So again, this is not the point of the practice, but it's something that can happen. It just it illustrates the great healing power of awareness, of openness, rather than of fear, rather than of contraction, rather than of tightening behind it. Okay, so working with pain, 
learning to soften, learning to open, learning to relax, and seeing our conditioned tendencies. Do we pull back out of fear? Do we have self-pity? Are we bargaining? Are we contracting? This shows us, it's very revealing about how we are with all other unpleasant situations in our lives. So we can really see and gain an incisive insight into the pattern of our conditioning. There's another aspect of experience we might have fear about, and it has come up for some of you in your practice, and that is often we have different kinds of images in the minds or memories in the mind. It may be of specific events. They may be more archetypal representations of deep, dark forces you know, that are part of our psyche, sort of archetypal representations of cruelty or of rage or of degradation or of all kinds of things, the dark shadow side that normally we neither are open to nor have access to, often in the meditation practice and sometimes in dreams on courses. The most amazing images start to come. They may be extremely frightful or horrifying or repulsive or... Can we see them for what they are? Can we see them as being simply images arising in the mind, nothing more? They have no power at all other than the power that we give them. No matter how horrifying, no matter how frightful, it's simply an image. It's like an image on the movie screen. But as these things come in, if they're very powerful and they're really touching us in some deep way, it's so easy to solidify a sense of self around them. Either taking them to be self or thinking that they're substantial. It's when we're afraid of them, when there's fear of them, that that's what gives them power. That's what gives them substance and we lose sight of their empty, insubstantial nature. Fear of pain, fear of these memories or images, which are just that. They're just memories or just images. We may have fear of certain powerful emotional energies or mind states certain qualities in our mind, which we talked about you know, some time ago, about the afflictive emotions, those mind states that are difficult to be with, that are unacceptable to us. There's often a fear of feeling unworthiness or loneliness or rage or anger or depression you know, or abandonment or failure. All these, all these feelings, mind states which come up, which are painful, 
in the same way that we might be afraid of feeling physical pain and contract, often there's a tendency to feel afraid of emotional pain. And so we contract. But there's a price for this non-acceptance. Because as long as these feelings, these mind states, these emotions are arising and we are unwilling to feel them, unwilling to open to them, we stay fragmented. We stay split within ourselves. Because this is a part of our experience that we are split off from, that we're cut off from. And then there's a very interesting psychological dynamic that begins to play in our lives. When there's non-acceptance out of fear of certain parts of ourselves, then we begin to look for validation to others. You know, are we okay in other people's eyes? because we're not fully okay or accepting within ourselves. There's no balance, there's no stability in that, because we're always looking. Am I okay with you? Am I okay with you? Because of a non-acceptance in ourselves. I saw this so clearly on my early retreats with Upandita, because I found it so difficult in the reporting and going into interviews, I found it so difficult just to be simple and straightforward about what was happening. And it amazed me how difficult it was to do that. And I saw, it took quite a while to see, that every time I went in, I was looking for some kind of approval. But I was looking for approval in a very misguided way. Because the reference point for that approval was whether I felt something to be acceptable or not. You know, and those things that I thought were unacceptable, I thought would not gain me the approval. And talking about it is ridiculous. The whole thing is about openness, about simplicity, it's about truthfulness. But this psychological dynamic is so strong because we are not really accepting equally of all the parts of ourselves. So a lot of the practice, both in meditation and in the interview process, which itself is a great learning, just to notice what goes on when you're speaking about your experience. Is it possible just to be simple and straightforward and uncomplicated? It was really difficult for me. But as my practice went on and as I became more accepting of the different defilements and the different parts of my practice that I thought were not going well and all of that, my whole relationship, of course, with myself, with my practice, and with Upandita changed. One of the great teachings from Munindraji, my first Dharma teacher in India, There's one phrase he used thousands of times. And it's really helped me a lot over the years. He said, be simple and easy. 
Just be simple and easy about things. Whatever is coming up. If we're simple and easy about things, our lives become simple and easy. But it takes some practice because we haven't been trained that way. There's another consequence of our non-acceptance of difficult, painful mind states, of our fear of feeling them. And that is our fear of feeling them very often drives us to all kinds of actions to avoid feeling them. Now, how much of what we do is an effort to avoid feeling bored? or feeling lonely. How much of our holding on, how much of our attachment to things, whether it's experiences in practice, whether it's people in our lives, whether it's conditions or objects, how much of our attachment is driven by our fear of feeling loss? And we're unwilling to feel that, and so we hold on tightly as if we really could hold on anyway. But we make that attempt. And how much do we avoid the taking of risks in our lives? Well, the possibility of really extending what we do out of a fear of failure. It's just interesting to see the, the role that fear plays in our lives. Given this time of year, as we're approaching Halloween, some years ago, sort of an image came to my mind which helped me a lot in opening to these painful mind states, painful emotions, which we often uh, invest with so much energy out of our fear of them. And I began to see all of these different mind states that arose in the mind as being like kids in Halloween costumes, you know, coming to the door. When, when some kid comes dressed up as a pirate, do you get afraid? No. Or as a ghost, or as a goblin, or as a something horrible. No, you probably smile and give them some candy. <laughs> Can we see in our own minds just all of these mindsets, just like kids in a Halloween costume? No. Oh, there's the raging monster. Have some candy. <laughs> yeah. There's the hateful ogre. Is <laughs> an apple. <laughs> it really helps just to put it in a whole different framework because they have no more substance in themselves than that pirate that's really just a costume. Just as with physical pain, our practice is all about 
just opening to this side of things, to the unpleasant, to the unpainful mind states, emotions, memories, images. And in that openness, when we, when we practice, and it is, it's practicing right at the edge. When we practice opening in this way, we see that there's nothing much there. We're at the movies. <laughs> it's like shifting cloud formations in an empty sky. You know, and the clouds get into all kinds of formations, and some are dark and ominous, and some are light and fluffy. They're just shifting formations due to conditions. And they appear this way, and they change, and they disappear, and then they appear this way, and change, and disappear. Why do we get so caught? We really need to see clearly. (laughs) Samsara, you know, all of samsara comes from taking the movie to be real. When we don't see clearly, we're simply acting all of this stuff out. Acting out our attachments, our identifications, our fears. There was once a little quotation in that great uh, encyclopedia of Western philosophy, uh, Newsweek magazine. (laughs) It was actually a quotation from Pascal said, most of the problems in the world would be solved if people could learn to sit quietly in a room. So here you are, solving the problems of the world. Because we begin to see the transparency, the insubstantiality of all the things that we usually take to be so solid, so real. We begin to work at that edge where fear comes up and see the possibility of opening to it, feeling the fear and then relaxing. Let me feel this. Let me see what it is. There's fear of pain. There's fear of sometimes these mind images that come, fear of different emotions. For many people, there's also a great fear of impermanence, of change, of loss. We hold on so tightly in our lives, whether it's to this body or to certain mind states. In fact, it's out of this fear of change that we have so conditioned our belief. We've constructed this whole sense of unchanging self. Well, there's some me in here, some I in here that's solid, that's unchanging, that's secure. And that whole mental construction comes out of our fear or unwillingness to open to this flow of change, just to be with it. Just as an experiment in practice, 
take a few minutes in each sitting where you just sit and you don't do anything at all. And most difficult, don't try not to do anything. Just don't do anything. (laughs) And see what happens. You just sit. You're not trying to do anything. You're not trying to be with the breath. You're not trying to be with sensations, nothing. Don't. It's like, you know these moving sidewalks in the airports? It's as if you're on a moving sidewalk and there were an opening in the middle of one. And it's just that sense of step off of it. Step off of the sidewalk. Okay, so you're just sitting. And the great illumination is that everything goes on without us. Everything is still happening. It doesn't need any sense of ourself doing something. And in that, we can really get that sense of just the, the continuous flow of change. In doing nothing, everything is revealed. There's a slight um, or, or ironic corollary to this fear of change, and that is some people, and I think it's fairly common, also have this fear at times of things not changing. Right? Some pattern of emotion or relationship and there's this fear in our minds, this will never change. The whole universe is changing, but not this. And so we can construct all kinds of dukkha for ourselves uh, in that identification with that fear that, that these conditions will never change. I'll always be stuck in this. Both in the fear of change and loss and the fear of things not changing, what's happening is that we are constructing or solidifying a sense of self, a sense of I. We start building pictures in the mind of who we are, how we are, and then get imprisoned by those pictures. There's a tremendous freedom in our practice in our lives when we can simply settle back allow each moment experience to arise and dissolve in the natural field of awareness. It's not easy to do because of our conditioning, but do you see how simple it is? Just sit and let everything come and go by itself. Nothing is very substantial. But we have to watch out when our fears come into play, because that's when we contract, that's when we solidify. A big fear for many people is the fear of death, fear of dying. There are two aspects to this. One which actually takes up more of our time 
is not actually about fear of dying, but it's our fear of our, our idea about dying. Because although we are dying moment to moment, but actually for most of us, we're not actually at the moment of entering death. And so our fear of it is not really the fear of what's happening in the moment. It's our fear of a certain idea. That's another kid in Halloween costume. But then fear also does arise for many people at the time of death. And the Buddha addressed this. There was one discourse where he talked specifically about this. A Brahmin came to him and said, you know, O Buddha, it seems to me that all beings fear death. And the Buddha replied, no, that's not true. Some do and some don't. And then he went on to explain who it is or why it is, what are the conditions for fear arising at the time of death, and what is the situation where there's no fear of death. And with this, as with so many of the teachings of the Buddha, after we read it or hear it, it seems so obvious, it seems so clear. And yet before we hear it, we may not really have a very clear understanding of it. This is another example of it, because as we talk about it, you'll see how obvious it is. Who is it that fears death? The Buddha said those people who are not free from desire or lusting after sense pleasures. At the time of death, the mind is going to be filled with agitation about the loss of these pleasures the loss of these desires, and so there will be fear. Thoughts come at those times. I won't be enjoying these things anymore. You know, for people very attached to them, that will be a fearful state. He said those people who have strong attachment to the body will have fear at the time of death. Well, it's obvious. The body is dying. If we have this strong identification with it, an attachment to it, if we have not seen clearly the impersonal nature, at the time of death there will be fear, there will be terror. Because we're losing what we're most attached to. The Buddha said that people who have not done anything good in their lives, not done anything noble in their lives, also will fear death. We talked about not, not having helped those who need help or not having protected those who need protection, but instead keep doing sort of unskillful things, cruel things. At the time of death, the thoughts of these repeated actions come up in the mind, and so there's fear. And the last condition for fear arising at the time of death is for people who have confusion about the Dharma, confusion about the nature of the mind, because then that confusion will be operative. And then he went on to say, as usually you find in the suttas, those who don't fear death, who are peaceful in the face of death, are those who are not 
driven by desire for sense pleasures. We're not addicted. Those who don't have attachment to the body, those who have done many good things in their lives, those who have practiced the Dharma and understood, these are people who at the time of death, minds are in clarity or in peace. I think what's important for us to see in our practice here is that these states of mind which the Buddha is talking about, that is of being free of desire, free of attachment, full of compassion, full of clarity, that's not something that's going to happen 20 years down the road after 10 three-month retreats. We have many moments of those during the day. We want to recognize them. We really want to recognize those moments of clarity, those moments of peace. Because then our practice is not trying to get something we don't have, but coming back to what's already here. We have it, but often we overlook it. We've talked about the different things that can cause fear to arise that really become a limit, a boundary for us, an edge. Pain can become an edge. Different intense mental images or emotions. The experience of impermanence, of death. These are the things that fear might arise with. So the question now is how to work with the fear when it does arise. As it comes up for us, how do we work with it skillfully? We need to practice opening, being mindful, being accepting of the fear itself. So we take that mind state, that emotion, as the object of our awareness. Now, I've spoken uh, quite a bit of my favorite mantra, it's okay. That came in working with fear. I had been on retreat here, self-retreat, and I was being overwhelmed by fear, and I was noting fear, 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 fear. I was caught. It was really consuming. And this was going on for days. And on about the third or fourth day of really in it, it's like something happened in my mind. It was like like a surrender. And I remember thinking, okay, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And that was was the birth of the mantra. It's okay. It can be here as long as it wants to be here. And in that moment, I realized that although I had been noting it, I had not been accepting it. I had been noting it so that it would go away. When I accepted it, it's okay. Then it became workable. How would you be with a frightened child? You know, if there were a child that was frightened, how would you be with him or her? You would be present, you would be caring, you would be loving. 
you wouldn't be dismissing, probably. You know, you're trying to get rid of the kid or pretending that the fear wasn't there, although sometimes people do that. Oh, you're not really feeling that when the kid's terrified. (laughs) It's to acknowledge it. And it's also you wouldn't be feeding it. You know, you wouldn't be saying, hey, you really should be afraid. (laughs) No, you would just be there with a loving presence. And in that loving presence, it creates the space for the fear to decondition itself. It's strange how we really know this. We have this wisdom when it's with somebody else, especially a child. But how difficult we find it to apply it to fear in ourselves. But it's the same principle. We're resting in mindfulness, in awareness, which means a loving acceptance. The fear comes, it's okay, let me feel it. We don't have to be afraid of the fear. This resting in the awareness is our greatest protection. You know, Steve Smith uh, regales you with many of his uh, surfing tales. Well, I have one whiteboarder rafting tale. <laughs> this is my big chance. <laughs> it, it's a little different than his kind of stories, <laughs> where he's conquering 20-foot waves. I was on this rafting trip in the Northwest, And we were going through these rapids. And on this particular trip, uh, they were kind of the main, the larger uh, rafts that were going down. But they also had kind of these little toy-like inflatable kayaks, you know, where people would just hang out in them and playing with them. So at one point in the river, I was in one. And they're very unstable. I mean, it's just like a bathtub toy in the middle of this river. That's <laughs> and so I'm in this little rubber kayak and I'm going down the river and this guide starts shouting at me, watch out for the hole. Hole? <laughs> I had no idea what a hole in a river was. <laughs> I thought holes were in the ground. <laughs> He's yelling, watch out for the hole, and I didn't know what he was talking about. (laughs) Well, I found out. (laughs) Because when the water goes over a rock in a certain way, it kind of creates this little vortex that's like a hole, and it pulls you in. And so I went over this into the hole, and I was really pulled down by it. And And it was pretty scary, you know, for the moment. Fortunately, I was, I was wearing a life jacket and kind of pushed me up. And then again, kind of, it, was, it was quite a powerful, whatever you call it, and it pulled me down again, and the life jacket pulled me up, and then just got out of it. So it was, it was both exciting and fearful and, and all of that. But on reflecting about it and the, also the nature of practice, I thought that mindfulness is really like that life jacket. You know, when we're wearing the life jacket of mindfulness, all sorts of things can happen. We can really pull, be pulled down into a vortex of fear or danger or whatever. Mindfulness is a great protection. 
because it allows us just to sit back and to watch what's happening, to be with what's happening. To be with the fear itself. We also want to let go of our expectations and models of how our practice should be. Because often we strengthen the fear of certain things because we have an expectation that this shouldn't be happening. Something is too difficult or feels too strange. Times of difficulty in the practice are the greatest gifts of the practice because they bring us right to the edge of what we're willing to be with. That is the place of practice. That's exactly the place where we can profoundly open. So if we can let go of the models or expectations that it should always be blissful or pleasant or whatever, and really honor those times of difficulty. Yes, this is the place to work. There's one teacher which has been tremendously inspiring to me, although I never met him. Uh, he was sort of the father, so to speak, of uh, many of the great Thai forest meditation masters. His name was Ajahn Mun. Uh, he's dead now but very fierce. And there's a biography of him that's extraordinary. He had all kinds of magical powers and lots of stories, wonderful stories. Well, his thing was, for himself and the monks that trained under him, was to go and sit right in the paths of tigers. You know. Now, these are tigers. <laughs> you know, these are not like little pussycats. <laughs> And to work with the fear that comes up. And to see how being in that situation, being with that fear, of course the story is told of, it's it's like people were forced into samadhi. (laughs) Because that was the only way of dealing with that level of fear. I better get concentrated here. (laughs) And at least in all of those stories, which... (laughs) The tigers never harmed any of them. Well, fortunately or not, there are no tigers in these woods. But we each have our own little tigers. You know, and you can begin to play with it. See what happens if you sort of make a non-moving resolve for however long. It could be ten minutes. It could be half an hour. It could be an hour. It could be an hour and a half. Just to play that edge. See what happens. You make the resolution for whatever period of time. And and you don't have to start huge. Start with a small. Let me sit here. I'm not going to move. I'm going to be with whatever arises. Let me die. Yeah, that kind of resolution. Resoluteness. It's powerful. It's very powerful. And it, it... shows us a certain strength and we start to deal with the fear that arises in the mind. You know, in a small scale. We don't need to go to the jungle and find the tigers. 
know, maybe try sleeping a little less or sitting a little longer, whatever. Play the edge a little bit. Also, you need to know when to retreat, when it's really overwhelming, when you feel like the mind is getting out of balance. You're being overwhelmed by it. Okay, so then back off a little bit until there's that inner strength again. So we want to be accepting. We want to be mindful of it. Wear the life jacket of mindfulness. We want to play the edge at times, kind of that heroic effort, courageous effort. And the last way I'll mention tonight for dealing with fear is really cultivating that sense of trust and love of metta. Metta is a great ally in working with fear because when there really, truly is metta in the heart, then fear is not there. close with this haiku poem. I don't know if anybody mentioned it yet or not, but it really expresses this whole quality of metta, of love, of trust in the face of whatever happens. It's a haiku which reads, simply trust, don't the leaves flutter down just like that. Or it's appropriate in this season. Simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like that. Each moment of our experience is fluttering down just like that. Simply trust. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.